everybody. I'm Megan. And I am Jeremy. And you're you. And this is Nobody Reads Short Stories, episode four. Huzzah! So for those who are just tuning in, Jeremy and I are both writers writing in Los Angeles. We have been friends since our, our uh, MFA program at Carnegie Mellon. And we wanted to create this podcast because we love writing and reading short stories. And we wanted to create a platform uh, where we could showcase uh, short stories from people that we really like. We also wanted some place for listeners to be able to listen to a full story. So while you're doing chores or chores <laughs> or like going to work, you'll get a full story. Yes. And we're always looking for new submissions. So if you go to our website, nobodyreadshortstories.com, down at the bottom, there's a submission link. And you can go there and submit your story. We would love to read it. We are 100% committed to showcasing stories from people of all backgrounds, and all cultures. So please submit. We would love to, uh, to showcase your story here on the podcast. And before we get too interesting, because you guys, you know that we might get really, really interesting, uh, make sure to like and subscribe to us. Uh, we are on YouTube, we're on Spotify, we're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher. Am I missing one, Megan? Did I get them all? You got the trifecta. Yes. Do it now. I saw that you didn't do it. You said you're going to do it later. Do it now. Okay, they did it. I just saw them do it. Awesome. Oh, okay. Yeah. Excellent. And then if you're on social media, uh, make sure to like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you use Twitter, make sure to hashtag uh, NRSS podcast. Yes. And if you're interested in learning more about uh, Jeremy and I's individual works, you can go to our individual websites. Mine is meganamorrison.com and if you sign up for notifications anytime I have an update about a project or something I'm working on you'll get a notification in your email and mine is jeremyraystories.com and every every week I deliver a microfiction story this week's microfiction is called The Murder Room and you won't be able to see it if you don't subscribe so do it are we ready for Cranky? alright I think we're ready for Cranky it's Cranky! He's stealing the for show. Those, stealing the show. For those who can't see, and it's their first time here, Cranky is an old um, timer that was once used when people used to develop their own films in dark rooms. They would use this to monitor the development. And now I use it to make sure that I don't overcook my lasagna. <laughs> Are we ready to crank Cranky? Do it. Crank the three minutes. Crank it. All right. So this week, I was reading a fantastic book called Dear Girls by Ali Wong. If you're not familiar with Ali, she is the star of um, Always Be My Maybe. It's a film one day you can find on Netflix, and she has a couple of She's a, a stand-up comedian, and she has a couple of specials on Netflix. She's so funny. Her her comedy is very brash. It's very honest. Uh, it's very straightforward. And one of the things that I really loved about her book is that she talks a lot about being a creative and about how hard it is to be a stand-up comic and just an artist in general. And she really puts a lot of focus on it's okay to fail. It's okay to bomb. It's okay to to go through this whole process of trying to find your voice and putting yourself out there. Uh, 
So I, I think it would be beneficial for anybody who's ever been a writer or been an artist to really uh, take that that lesson to heart because I know sometimes we're always like, I must write the perfect story or I must make the perfect film. And it's really in the, the process where you really learn to uh, to find your unique and honest voice. My Libby app just gave me that book. I haven't started oh. it yet, but like I'm going to start it. It's It's up there. And speaking of talent... Um, this is a book I have finished. It is called Talent is Overrated. It's by Jeff Colvin. Uh, it starts out really slow. I was like, oh my God, this book is so slow. But the information <laughs> in it is so good. Like I definitely give it five stars. It talks about how people become masters, like how many hours it takes and why some people uh, either get really good at what they're doing or they put in the time and they don't get better. They actually get worse. It's really, really a fascinating read. I really enjoyed it. Oh. Yeah, I'm going to go back through and highlight it for myself because I want to become a master writer. I want to be a master <laughs> writer. That's that's really cool. Like, um, I had flagged a, a quote from Allie that kind of fits into what you're saying about, like, the time you have to spend. And she says that um, at at the center of making it, you know, we all want to make it, quote unquote, make it. She says at the center of is having a tolerance for delayed gratification. I mean, you and I are killing it at that. Yes. A passion for the craft, check. Yes. And a willingness to fail, which, yes, and uh, I'm getting better at it every day. <laughs> and when I fail, eventually, I will too. I'm just kidding. I fail all the time. Yes. I feel so yes. bad. Yes. I, I know that it's not something <laughs> that you really understand, no, Jeremy, the concept you, of failing. <laughs> do you remember that monologue that I did at Carnegie Mellon? Oh, my gosh. You're you're never going to let yourself forget that, are you? But you remember it. Do you remember anything but that monologue? It was so bad. It was the worst. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. I was all in my head about your monologue. I was trying to set it up so that you get scared. It's my favorite part. Okay, so you're, onward. You're evil. <laughs> I am evil. Uh, today we have a first. We're presenting two pieces since they are on the short side of short stories by Carol Ann Sefflinger. Two stories by Carol Ann Sefflinger. One, Annie. She sits perched atop my dresser, ever watchful, even ever watchful, though one eye is barely open. Her hair, once radiant and full of life, is now grotesquely shorn with strange ridges and clumps that would frighten even the most stoic of children. I was the stylist who created that abomination many, many years ago. Her original tattered dress was replaced quite some time ago, but the dress she now sports is at least two sizes too large and was meant for a human toddler, not my Annie. We don't they don't make dresses in her size anymore, and perhaps that's just as well. The mis-sized dress matches her hair. She's one adorable mess now, and even her socks don't quite fit. The socks were gifted to me by my husband one year when we traveled and I realized I was short a pair or two. Said husband, for some reason, bought me a tiny child-sized pair, so after a good laugh over them, I promptly added them to Annie's wardrobe and thanked him for the thought even if it was unintentional. Annie's full name is Annie Carroll. She was born one year after I was, and when I was old enough to name her, and being the only girl with four other brothers, 
I decided to give her my name in reverse. So from Carol Ann, she became Annie Carol. I was told she looked just like my twin when I was small, when I was a small one-year-old, except for her lovely blue eyes. Her dark hair might have gone better with brown or hazel eyes, but back then, everyone apparently wanted blue eyes and not the manufacturer gave them, so the manufacturers gave them to my brunette Annie. In a sense, she is my polar opposite, just like her name. She is calm, accepting, tolerant of all my foibles, and silently wise. Annie knows all my secrets. She's been witness to all my heartaches, all my aspirations, all my temperamental outbursts, and still she remains ever watchful, far mellower than her twin, though her hair is quite alarming, as are the missing eyelashes on the one eyelid that almost never stays quite fully open. And though she is wearing someone else's dress and the socks my husband thought would fit my small but most definitely not doll-sized feet, she seems grateful to be here with me, my tiny protector, because she knows she is loved by me and now bemusedly tolerated by my husband. Wherever I go, she'll be there. She's the sister and daughter I never had. She's a part of me. She's Annie Carroll. Two, my mother's doll. As I was the youngest of five and the only girl, my mother really enjoyed making clothes for me and a few years later, shopping for them with me. In fact, it sometimes felt to me as if I were a doll for her to dress. In addition to being the only daughter, I started acting when I was around four years old, which gave my mother two excuses of reasons to fuss over me. By the time I was in junior high, my mother discovered a store in the then newly created shopping mall, Topanga Plaza in Woodland Hills, where they would tailor the outfits they sold. Since I was small for my age and rather thin, a lot of tailoring was necessary to have me fitted for these somewhat madmen styled outfits for my first year of junior high school. Plus, I was only 11 when I entered junior high and I looked about nine years at that. Please keep in mind that girls were not yet allowed to wear pants to school, so we all wore skirts or dresses, but these clothes still made quite the statement. I was almost persuaded to believe this was the look for me, even though I was more of a tomboy when I wasn't acting. Since I had grown up with only brothers to play with, or should I say tag along after. But I did like the way the clothes fit and seemed to flatter me, and so I went along with this evil plan to be my mother's living doll. In actuality, these were our special bonding times and I reveled in them. My life at home was often gloomy since my parents were always fighting, sometimes even violently. Thus, I did treasure those rare mother-daughter outings, even if it meant that I had to try on endless outfits to find one we could both agree on. It was only recently I remembered our outings to a store called Tamara's, and while I eventually made more of my own choices and wore more youthful and popular preteen and teen styles, those few outfits I had still remain, in my mind, the most sophisticated articles of clothing I've ever owned. And I believe the closest to the way my mother would have dressed had she been allowed to have a career instead of being dragged out of night school by my father as soon as they started dating so he'd have her to himself every night before they married followed by her being relegated to starting a family and catering to her husband thereafter. Still, 
Even after my having learned all that, and despite his rather controlling behavior, I did have a bond with my father. He always called me his spitting image, and we loved exploring nature together, even if just in our backyard. And we both were a lot more social than my mother. So at times, I was torn between my love and appreciation for her and my special connection with him. But I was also very frightened of his temper, which, along with his very old world ways, made us all walk on eggshells most of the time. He was the king of the castle, and so I guess we were all his minions, even I, his spitting image. Perhaps partly because he resented the time my mother took to drive me to my auditions after school and her being on the set with me all day during shoots, which, other than shopping with me and running errands for her main escape, he treated the money I earned as a child as if it were intended for household expenses, such as making improvements on our home, including adding a bedroom and a backyard park porch to the house. Finally, after most of my earnings had already been spent, my mother created an account in my name to protect any future income. She called it a trust fund, but what ended up in there after all the home improvement projects was barely enough to buy me a used car. So much for the Jackie Coogan law that supposedly protected child actors' earnings. I believe that misuse of my earnings by my father may have been one reason why my mother decided to buy me these fairly expensive outfits when I was a preteen. It was the safest way for her to lash out since she could just explain it away as necessary for auditions. How else could I help to do further renovations on our home if I didn't get those gigs? All of this is connected, however tangentially, to my recent revelation that when my mother was becoming less lucid when she was nearing 90, and she asked me if I could get her a doll that looked just like me, that for her, the doll would represent both me as a child and perhaps the daughter I would never have that would also have been her granddaughter. Even though she did have grandchildren from my older siblings, I believe she felt this would have been different because since I'm her only daughter, she might have wanted to be with me every step of the way throughout my pregnancy and beyond. My mother never pressed me to have children. She always wanted me to pursue my dreams, however I saw fit to do so. But in the back of my mind, I always knew she would have preferred I married earlier instead of 43 so that I could start a family, something I never planned on nor desired. Though other than that, I would do anything for my mother, not only because of our powerful mother-daughter bond, but also because of all that she sacrificed for her children and all she endured before she even got on a boat from Poland when she was 10 years old. I did not get a doll for my mother because I knew she needed my presence more than a doll. So I visited her nearly every day and every time I would meet up with her and my brother, the one who lived with her, at a restaurant. As soon as she'd see me enter that restaurant, she'd call out, there's my baby. And that was why I didn't get her a doll. I was my mother's baby, her doll. So now when I see my child in my doll, Annie, I see my mother's grandchild as well. Even though Annie started out as the sister I never had and not my make-believe daughter. Her blue eyes are my mother's eyes and their watchfulness is like my mother's blue eyes always watching over me worrying about my future, my past, my wayward ways, my Ill inability and or lack of interest in dressing the way she desired and had tried to instill in me. 
and her need to live vicariously through me since she missed out on so much of her own life. My Annie and my mother, the two focal points in my life. I made mistakes with Annie by chopping up her hair when I was a child and later neglecting her for too long. And my mother may have made a few mistakes with me, both by giving me too much freedom in the 1960s, no less, and by needing me to live up to some ideal that always eluded me and never quite captivated me the way it had her. Not all dolls do what their owners want. However, despite any regrets she may have had for how my life turned out, my most enduring memory of my mother's advice was what she told me each time we were at an audition just before I walked into the office. Just be yourself and have fun. That I've done, Mom. That I've always done, for better or for worse. The end. That was great. <laughs> yeah, that was that's that's always like a, a fun one to read. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed listening it to this time. And like what really stood out to me was just the relationship between her and her her mom. You know, this is a different time period too. Like what a great mom she was, how supportive she was. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and for her to come from making that whole journey, like coming from Poland and coming to a new country and starting her own family and having you know, going through such a time, it's there's there's so much in the story that that isn't said you know that's that's very compelling and i i also and i go go ahead no you (laughs) (laughs) no you jeremy you go (laughs) i was just gonna say that i i find it fascinating when people have connections like this to inanimate objects like i i myself get so attached to things that that don't live and breathe. And um, I often, it, it just feels so instinctual to do it too. And I sometimes second guess myself, but then I'm like, oh, well, you know, I, I can't help the way I feel about this thing that I don't want to see get destroyed. Yeah, I think she had a, she, like, she had a knack for making something that could be creepy, not creepy at all, you know, because this isn't a child talking about her doll. Um, what I liked in particular with the second piece is that uh, the doll takes on a new meaning from the beginning of the story to the end. You know, it becomes a representation of her mom. You know, her mom passing away. So yeah, yeah. So I was able to interview Carol Ann before. Unfortunately, with COVID, we can't do live interviews. But it was a great interview, and we're going to show you that now. Thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. So Carol Ann comes to us from Los Angeles. Carol Ann, how, how long have you been in Los Angeles? I was born and raised here, native. That's awesome. You're, you're a rarity. I'm a native valley girl even. Oh yeah? So, can, you yeah. Do, can you do a valley girl accent? No, I can't really, because <laughs> I'm pre-Valley Girl accent, so. Okay. Was that weird when it, like, like came? Like, it was, like, in the 80s, right, that the Valley Girl accent came? Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was fun. I liked it, and I have heard I have heard people speak like that, and what I love is what still exists is the, the voice going up at the end of a statement like it's a question. Oh that still exists. Yeah, it's everywhere but, now. That's everywhere. I know. So I went to the store, and when I was at the store, I saw this guy 
It's like, what? What, what, what do you actually answer? <laughs> I love that. Uh, Carol Ann, uh, for people who don't know you, like, do you want to talk about yourself a little bit? Like, who you are and what you do, what you're passionate about? Oh, sure. Okay. Well, as you'll you heard already, I guess, in one of the pieces, I was a child actor. I'm still in the union, but I, I did a lot of work as a child. I still love acting. I sort of transferred over into doing some voiceover here and there and plays. I love plays and I love writing plays. I got into writing because I wanted to use original monologues. So I started writing my own monologues and little by little that turned into plays and then I started writing short stories. And in this case, these are little memoir short stories, but I write a lot of total fiction. And I really love writing. And I love that you can write in your pajamas. <laughs> you don't have to worry about how you look when you write. And I, yes, and I tutor, and I love tutoring. I have a master's in linguistics, and so a lot of language work, things like that. But I mean, I, I tutor everything for smaller, <clears throat> pardon me. Again, I mentioned I have a frog in my throat. Allergies in LA, there's a whole bunch of allergies right now. Right, and that's all it is, folks. Plus, nothing's <laughs> contagious. So don't worry. Nothing's contagious on the video. <laughs> but anyway, so I love tutoring, I love writing, and I love acting, and everything to do with all of those. Well, thank you so much for having your pieces on the show. Um, oh my. Uh, when I heard it, we, we happened to go to writer's group together. Um, for those people listening. And when she presented Annie, I was just really into it. It was a really interesting story from an interesting perspective. Uh, Carol Ann, I have questions for you. Are you ready for them? Okay, I think so. <laughs> so why the doll motif in both pieces? The, the second piece I wrote later, My Mother's Doll, happened because after I wrote Annie, Annie is still in my my our, my husband and my bedroom. She's featured at the window. She's just there all the time. And so that's what inspired me, of course, to write the first piece. But when I looked at her one day and just my mind started wandering and I flashed on something that happened before my mother passed away in 2010. The last few years of her life, she started, she had a lot of little mini strokes. She never had Alzheimer's, but she started losing her ability to communicate totally. She recognized all of us all the time. She was fine. And she lived to be in 97, so we were very fortunate. So, But she started asking me for a doll. And uh, and as you'll hear in the, or heard in the stories, I looked at Annie and all of a sudden I remembered that. Was this the first one? Was this Annie the first one that we're going to hear that inspired this trigger just for the audience? Yes, the first one inspired the trigger for the second one. The first one was just sort of a meditation on her. And and the second one was sort of like, oh my God, it just reminded me. It just all came back to me about my mom asking, I want a doll that looks like you. And um, Oh my gosh, is that it just, what she it, said? I want a doll that looks like you? Yes, I yes. And she brought it up, not just one day. She brought it up maybe four or five of my visits to her. And so it was like a thing. And I... I I didn't know what to say. I, didn't, I couldn't get a doll that looked like me, but I made sure, as I mentioned in the piece, to, to visit all the time. So it's really touching. So anyway, so that's 
and and it was triggered by a memory. It's not like I repressed the memory, but I didn't think about it for a while because she passed 10 years ago. And then all of a sudden it just whooshed back at me. Yeah, related to I Want a Doll That Looks Like You. Can you can you relate that to the piece, the second piece, My Mother's Doll, a little bit? Like how, how that expanded into the story? Well, that's the one. That's right. the one that was about my eventually my mom asking for a doll that looked like me. And all of a sudden, my memories of being a child actor, dealing with some stuff, issues between my mother and my father, and all of that, that came from my remembering her wanting a doll that looked like me because I never had kids. I never had a little girl. And even though my much, much, much older brothers, because my oldest brother is 19 years older than I am, they had kids. I'm the only girl. So it would have been her granddaughter in her mind from me. So that's why in my mind, the doll that looks like me is also her wanting me to be that little child she remembered and her wanting a baby of mine to be her granddaughter. So that's where that piece came from, my mother's doll. That's that's really it, touching. And thank you for being so vulnerable, Carolyn. It's It's really lovely. It's really beautiful. I think you're going to really connect with the listeners. Um, going with that, focusing in on the second piece, what did you get from writing that afterward, Caroline? Communicating things, it's not that they were repress, repressed memories, but they were things I don't think about on a daily basis. Again, I'm of a certain age, let's just say that, being an actor, we don't say more <laughs> than that, Where, but my childhood is way long time ago and all of a sudden I'd start remembering more and more things about what happened back then. I've written things about my youth before but this one was different. Yeah. So it just, things came back as I started writing. It started with the trigger. It started with my writing about my mom asking me that and then I started remembering all the things she didn't get to do. All the things she was deprived of doing and it all just Everything for me that some of her last communications to me were about wanting that doll. Not not on her deathbed, not like that, but I mean the last few years where she could really communicate. But even, uh, and I don't know if I wrote this, uh, I think it's in the piece. I should look before I say this, no, but say anyway, it, it. E even up to the last few times I would visit because she lived with my brother who's still around. Uh, he still lives in the house they lived in together because he never married and he's an older brother. When I would meet them, even when she didn't communicate much at all, as soon as I walked into the coffee shop, I think that's in there, I'm not sure, she'd go, there's my baby! And I was always her baby. So that's a part of my mother's doll. I mean, yeah, I know I'm the youngest, I'm the only girl, all of that. And, and so that there's my baby is that part of this whole thing. Did you know? she ever talk to you about the things that she wasn't able to do? Because I know that you you told me that you were really, really close with your, your mom. Yes, she loved dancing and she actually had a beautiful voice. But she came over from Poland when she was 10 years old and and her mother had come over earlier, so she was on the ship alone at 10, okay? Mm -hmm. We're talking a long time ago. And 
so she got scared when somebody wanted to take her on the road to dance adagio she was 15 and he was like maybe in his early 20s and so she was afraid of that so she chickened out of that and then later on she realized that was an opportunity for her then when she met my father before they got married he she had gone to night school because she had to work she had to work as a teenager you know to help earn money in the family and he just said no you know mm. I, I need you to myself and he didn't trust her to, so he took her out of night school and then basically she was relegated to nothing wrong with this but to only having children and keeping the home and then eventually after they divorced a few years before he passed she finally started getting like a part-time job at a at a department store you know but not the kinds of things she had dreams about and that's why she got my brother I don't mention that but my second okay four older brothers the youngest of the older brothers and I were both entered into a picture contest which is how we got into acting we were I was a baby I was 15 months old and he was two and a half well, well let's talk about that Carol Ann Car uh, Carol Ann was a, a child actress uh, please talk about that that's it's really interesting guys well okay so there were no connections a lot of people oh who did you know no <laughs> it was a, it was a picture contest for little mr. and miss America and we were runners-up we weren't the you know the winners I don't remember but I was 15 months old and when the picture was taken, my brother is two and a half years older than me, so he would have been like three, I guess. Anyways, um, and we paraded on the, the at the Greek theater. We would walk across the stage and we'd be judged. And I guess I, I, I walked when I was eight months old, so I was fine at 15 months. But I'm sure my mom or somebody walked with us. I don't know how that worked. But anyway, we were runners-up, and the runners-up got into what was then called the Screen Children's Guild. Well, the Screen Children's Guild, a, eventually folded into the Screen Actors Guild, which is really what it was. It was the Union Guild. My brother didn't want to keep acting and he never got really big parts and he wasn't really into it. And so but he was he was adorable, but he you know, he wasn't like into into acting. And I was. So I kept going and I kept getting bigger parts and I learned by doing. <laughs> uh, I I don't remember who it was, but who who held you in their arms? Like you said that who was that? <laughs> Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Clint Eastwood <laughs> when, held Carol Ann in his arms. Right. In the, in the show Rawhide, where he was adorable. I mean, before he got really hard looking, he was just gorgeous. I had a crush on him when I was seven. <laughs> I was seven. And there's a thing where I'm supposed to jump over a fire. And even though it's jets shooting up, it's real fire. And it's supposedly they're going to burn this woman as a witch at the stake. And I'm running over to get my dolly. I mean, I should have kept that in the motif. <laughs> but anyway, it's like I want my dolly throughout the whole thing. Well, to jump over that, they took the camera off for a second so he could pick me up and put me over the other side of the fire. So, 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 yeah. And then after one of the scenes, I also, it's the only time I've ever gotten a standing ovation. For because I was screaming through the forest at a different scene. I want my dolly, I want my dolly. And they were jumping out from behind hollow trees, screaming, scream. And it was like, ah, you know, and I was seven and I never did a dramatic part before. So I'm screaming. And at the end of it, I was shaking. And everybody stood up, including Clint Eastwood. Everybody. Um, 
Gil Favor was played by Eric Fleming, was the star of Rawhide. All of them stood up and gave me a standing ovation. Carol Ann, I'll, I'll plug you at the end too, but you're so intriguing. Like, uh, like it's she's making this interview really difficult because we should be talking about her short story. And oh, here, sorry. But this yes, is not sorry. your fault, it's mine. Like, I'm just so interested <laughs> in your stories. Um, so Carol Ann, uh, where can we find more of you like after after this interview? Find more of yes. me in regards to, to writing, up. acting. All of it. Oh, well, <laughs> you probably Google Carol Ann Sefflinger, but it's not all great stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I mean, I'm on I'm on a lot of acting sites, whether I stay on them or not. Right now, I'm on Actors Access. I'm on. Uh, I think I got rid of one of them. I'm on LA Casting. I'm on. You know, you could find, and I'm a, I actor uh, on Screen Actors Guild site, the SAG After site, um, which it seems like they're in the middle of maybe eventually improving it because it's a little inky right now. Put some links but I don't... down below so you'll be able to uh, stalk her. <laughs> Caroline, going yeah. back to oh, nice wait, way. sorry. <laughs> in a nice, in a way, nice way, in a nice way. <laughs> don't you dare stalk her in a mean way. Caroline's too nice for that. So going back to the the questions, you you were talking a little bit about your your father, and then from uh, talking to you like before this interview, you mentioned that he was the antagonist. Would you be open to talking about that a little bit further on like what you got from writing it after? Yes, it sort of reminded me he was the antagonist in that the his he had a bad temper and he kind of kept my mom from having as much freedom as she would have wanted you know like it was it was the era but even he was much more conservative than that his, his thing was i'm king of the castle you know and so everybody must obey his rules you know that kind of thing and he had a temper that scared all of us but at the same time it reminded me how he and i used to go outside and he'd show me how to gently catch a grasshopper and then let it go and things like that in nature. He loved nature. And so even though he was like, he ran a carpet store, he wasn't like an outdoorsy guy. I mean, Jews just aren't, frankly. <laughs> we don't go camping, you know. No, but anyway, <laughs> there was a connection. And even when I was upset with him, he would say, you know, I could read you like a book. That was one of his expressions. The other one is he called me his spitting image. And I think that's in the in the piece. So there was a connection between us. We both had hazy, hazel eyes, I still do, and dark hair. And my mom was blonde and blue-eyed. So we had that weird mixture in the family. He and I were more social. I mentioned that too. My mom was a little shyer, partly because of you know, what she wasn't allowed to do and things like that. But she didn't like parties and he liked parties and I liked parties. So I knew I took after him in some ways, just not that temper. Well, that's what's... No matter what my husband says, not that temper. I, I mean, that's that's <laughs> fascinating. I was uh, having to do the interview with Megan for, for my piece. And what, one of the things that we learned from that is that uh, 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 the or the antagonist of that piece is a nice lady, you know? So what's interesting is that we're all shades of gray, you know? And you even mentioned it in your piece. I thought that was great that um, you mentioned the good and the, the, the more difficult things about your father. Right, yeah. that he and I have a bond anyways, you know, even even with all the issues, yeah. What, um, which, which story was the hardest for you to write? My mother's doll, because it was, the first one was kind of a, 
it just made me feel like this. I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> I'm a writer. I don't know how to explain it. Um, it's just it was just this this feeling of just this joy at writing about my doll. This this uh, like a memory piece, a meditation on her. The second one brought up mm. things from my past, and also my lo- loss of my mom. Even though I was blessed to have her as long as I did, she was 40 when I was born. So it wasn't you know like we were that close in age you know like we do mother-daughter things a lot because you know we just didn't you know but we had a connection we had a really strong connection but it brought up the fighting in the house it brought up things that I had written about before and other things Um, my dad trying to hold the car back when my mom was going to take me on an interview because she might not be home in time for his dinner to place it on the table as soon as he walked in the door, things mm. like that. So it brought up a lot of stuff. What, was that uh, one of the hardest things about writing it? Is the stuff it brought up? Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for being here and thank you for being so vulnerable, not only here, um, this was a beautiful interview, but also in your pieces. Like I really appreciate you being part of the project. Oh. Well, thank you, Jeremy, for the opportunity. You guys are, you and Megan are amazing. And yeah, for doing this. Thank you, Caroline. Mm -hmm. Uh, Make sure to 